Okay, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked John the Baptist, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Father, I desperately ask the grace moving in me by Your Spirit to unfold the text before us. May my lips speak the intended meaning that's there. May you help each of us hear the intended meaning in your holy word. And may you cause our hearts to love it to the glory of Jesus. Amen. The gospel, in a nutshell, is that God has sent His one eternal Son to become a human being in order to purchase the salvation of all who are being saved. And He did it all. Absolutely. He doesn't need our help. It's 100% The grace, the mercy of God saving us sinners forever from His wrath unto the enjoyment of His very presence throughout all eternity. There's nothing that we could do. There's no ethical and moral improvement that we could do in order for God to look on us and say, Aha! I'll save you because of what I see. Okay. Now, when you preach that Gospel clearly and consistently, you may be accused within the church of being What is called, here's a new word for a lot of you, an antinomian. From antinomianism. Let me give you the explanation of that word theologically. Anti is the Greek word for against, or in this case, with with no. And then nomian from the Greek word namos, law. In other words, the teaching, and this has always been in the church and rampant, and it's around today. There are antinomians in the church that, that preach and think, and I think wrongly, that a person can come and ask Jesus into the heart, and if they believe in Jesus, whatever that means, they're a Christian. And whether there is any obedience happening to one degree or another in their life or not is totally irrelevant to their salvation. They're saved even though there's never ever any change in their life. That's antinomianism. It's unbiblical. Over the last couple of weeks, in the Christian blogosphere, there's been a debate where some teachers, other pastors, theologians preach what I think is the Gospel real clearly on grace alone and they're being accused by other brothers who love Christ of maybe being antinomian. So, 
Antinomianism is out. I'm not an antinomian. The question is, between this blogosphere debate, we both believe true Christians have repentant lives. They have a life that is pursuing holiness. We both agree. The issue is this. How does that work? And that's the issue. Let me just give you a taste of the debate from the blogs that I picked up. For instance, after the Apostle Paul, of course, writes, because Paul was accused of being an antinomian. What do we do, Paul? Shall we just sin all the more that grace may abound? Maybe, maybe sometimes you're preaching the gospel correctly when you get accused of that. But then now Paul answers, No! By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he goes on to argue, not, now you need to add moral, ethical behavior to the grace of God. He just goes on and adds, the gospel produces this. So actually, I'm going to skip that good quote from Michael Horton. And let me just give one from Dane Ortland Because he sums it up well. Here's the issue. Here's one way to solve the problem for us Christians. One way is this. Quote, to balance gospel grace with exhortations to holiness. You've got two things going on here. As if both need equal airtime, lest we fall into legalism on the one side, neglecting the grace of God, or we fall into antinomianism on the other side, neglecting holiness. There's one way to solve the problem, and I don't think that's the biblical way. He goes on, quote, The other way, which I believe is the right and biblical way, is to so startle this restraint-free culture with the gospel of free justification that the functional justifications of human approval, moral performance, sexual indulgence, or big bank accounts begin to lose their vice grip on human hearts and their emptiness is exposed in all its fraudulence. It sounds backwards. But the path to holiness is through, not beyond the grace of the gospel. Because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform the heart. Now, that issue leads us into our text this morning. Because John's going to, if you're paying attention, will bring up these type of questions. What does that mean? How does that work? And so, if you're there again in Luke chapter 3, what we have seen over the previous couple weeks in verses 1 to 9 is that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preaching repentance. Which, for him, at the core, meant stop relying on anything you are or that you do. Stop relying on your birthright or your religious practices and turn to rely solely on the mercy, grace of God. This, remember, was clear in verse 8 when John said to the crowd who came, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John was clear. The idea of a birthright, even a religious birthright or heritage, and you trust in that, it is at the essence of sinful pride. 
See, in the first century, within Judaism, the misreading of the Scripture that that promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll bless you and, and all your descendants after you, the misreading of that to mean, look at that, I'm one of them. I have my lineage. It goes through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, those 12 tribes. Therefore, that promise is guaranteed to me regardless of whether I have a conversion experience of repentance. That was a totally wrong interpretation of the Hebrew Scripture. John, therefore, remember, called them children of Satan. You vipers. Not the children of Abraham. Because whether you are born a Jew and do all the religious practices, and it's same for all of you Protestants or Roman Catholics, or whoever we are. You think your religious function puts you in right with God. Pagan, atheist, or the most religious person in the world, John's message was, by your nature, the wrath of God looms over you because of sin. And what John was doing when he said that was not changing the meaning of the Scripture that came before him. What I mean is this. The Bible was always clear that God will keep His promise to Abraham to bless him like He did with Abraham. He justified him. He forgave Abraham's sins. And there's a promise to him about this coming to all his descendants. But the reality, scripturally, was always this. That that promise is not guaranteed to every single physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The point in the scripture was that that promise is guaranteed to people who are like Abraham who hear the promise of God's free grace and repent as Abraham did. Turn away from idols and follow God. It was always given and meant for those who are of the faith of Abraham. And that's what John the Baptist meant when he said to his fellow Jews, God could take these stones on the riverbed here and make living children of Abraham. And when God does that and leaves you Pharisees to His judgment, He is in no way being unfaithful to His promise to Abraham. That's John's message. Now, if you either listen or turn, I'm going to go to the book of Romans for a minute, and watch this same truth unfold through the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. Now, in Romans 4, starting with verse 11, Paul says that the reason that God promised a blessing to Abraham and justified, made Abraham right with him, forgave him of his sins. And the reason God did that for Abraham before Abraham was given the sign of circumcision was, pick up with verse 11, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That means ceremonially, Jewishly circumcised. The Gentiles. So that righteousness would be counted to them, the Gentiles, who believe as well. And He did it in order to make Abraham also the father of the Jews. Now, watch. 
the father of the circumcised. Not all of them. Watch. Who are not merely circumcised or Jewish, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was given the sign of the Jewish covenant. And Paul continues in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. And so, John the Baptist comes, and he says, out of these rocks, the, the rocks don't have any religious badges of kosher keeping, circumcision, feast keeping. I don't eat with dirty Gentiles. They don't have anything but deadness. And he says, God can take that deadness of a rock and raise up offspring to Abraham. And if you have come to love Jesus, that's exactly what He did to you. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. The Baptist point was to say, don't rely on anything that you can offer to God is the reason why you should receive this forgiveness of sins. Don't rely on moral improvement, your religious heritage, good deeds, church going, nothing. And the great news of this is this. And here it is, the Gospel. No matter who you are, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, murderer or philanthropist, forgiveness of sins is open to all. Here we go now. According to John, through the same road, of repentance. This is where it gets sticky. This means that any person, no matter their background, if they turn away from trusting in their distinctives and they turn to trust in God's free offer of forgiveness of sins, bank on nothing but His mercy, then they can be saved from the wrath to come. It is by grace alone. And yet John the Baptist words it this way. Or Luke actually words this about his message. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A, a repentance that leads to the forgiveness of sins. And that sounds like a condition. So, you can see why there may be, between real believers, debates on how does this thing work out. You sound antinomian. Yeah, but you sound like you're adding legalism to the gospel of grace. And, and we have always wrestled within the church with such tension. If someone were to ask me, do, according to John the Baptist, are you, do, does that mean that I need to have real actions of repentance in my life in order to be saved in order 
to have the forgiveness of sins? The answer to that question is not a simple yes or a simple no. Like I usually do. My answer is to ask a question or to make this statement. It depends on what you mean by the question. If you mean that these actions of repentance in my life are the primary means, or the primary cause of my getting forgiveness, of my getting justified in Christ, of my being saved, then the answer is no. No, 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 no. They are not that primary cause that gets somebody saved. But, if you mean something like this, the cause of salvation is God's grace coming and planting within me a tree. Here's John's metaphor language with a tree. Planting within me a tree of faith. And therefore, if that tree is real, it's going to have to bear fruit of real saving faith. Slash, because the flip side of faith is repentance. It's going to have to bear the fruit of repentance. Then, yes, if that's not there in a person's life, something there that's real, they will not be saved in the end unless that tree ever does come about and bear fruit. That's why John says in verse 8, Bear fruits... Of repentance. Now, here's a nice little ditty, but it's key. These actions that he's going to go into, and we're going to see, they are the fruit on the tree of salvation. They're not the root and the cause of the tree. Again, they're the fruit they're not the root. So let's start to slowly look at this repentance, the fruits that flow out of genuine repentance that John and Jesus will call for. First is this from our text. True, genuine repentance, a turning from the direction, the thoughts that you're going, at the core that repentance is in touch with the reality that it has nothing to offer. It doesn't come to God with gifts. Can I? Okay, is that good enough for me to be saved? It doesn't do that. It has the sense of the reality, may I say it, of the message of the gospel that. I need mercy. Absolutely. What I need is everything you're going to offer here and none of it I deserve. John said to the crowd, this is, remember, this is all in the context of this repentance. You, and this is you and me, by nature, you brood of vipers, serpents, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Well, okay, that, that at least tells me this that true repentance cannot say and really mean from its heart, I'm not a viper. I'm. I don't really deserve perfect, holy, just wrath in hell forever. Not me. True repentance can say that. Before genuine repentance comes, we all is born into sin and dead to God justify ourselves. 
justify our actions. Hmm, basically good. Or, no, that's just, a, you know, just family of origin issues. That's what that is. But those who come to genuine repentance have confessed, according to this text, their need to be saved from something they know they deserve. And in the text, it's the wrath of God which is coming. True repentance does not pretend to come to God and to offer to Him some moral cleanup in my life. Now would you? John was really clear about the true need that we all have. And that is this. We need life. We're born, as Paul said, in sin. Romans 5. We're born, according to Ephesians 2, as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And if we're alive today, it's because God took this rock, this stony heart, and made it alive. God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And all John the Baptist is doing there is repeating the promise of the new covenant from Ezekiel chapter 36. Starting with verse 26, God said hundreds of years before this through Ezekiel, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, soft, pliable. And I, God, will put My Spirit within you. And this is where it gets controversial. Not not in the Bible. (laughs) but with us who read the Bible. And I will cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So true repentance is the fruit of the Holy Spirit imparting a new heart that was dead and now is alive and loves the sweetness of who God is to Him. It's the only reason David was different than Saul. God gave him a new heart. God places the Spirit in a person in the hearing of the Gospel. It's called new birth. Why can't you see it? It's perfectly clear to me. Has that happened to you? It wasn't clear to you the day before. And then it was. And it tasted good. The Holy Spirit comes And He plants the tree of life, of new birth in our hearts. And trees bear fruit. Orange trees bear oranges. Okay, kids? I know, it sounds so dumb, doesn't it? Apple trees bear apples. And children of Abraham trees bear the fruit of Abraham. He believed God. It's called faith. He he turned from his idols and and he went where God told him. He didn't do it perfectly. Thank God he didn't do it perfectly. Thank God we got a great man of faith as our father of faith and our example who like you is left in sin until that day of the resurrection. But there's a tree 
At times you see a good harvest, and other times it's for a little bit, and we're constantly left desperately dependent to beg for God's work of His Spirit in our life. So, John the Baptist, there he is, preaching this very sobering message who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Don't just come thinking this water washes away sin. Come bearing the fruits of repentance. And evidently many, many of them are being convicted that do I have real fruit? Okay. What fruit? John? That's their question. What is this repentance, fruit flowing from it, look like? And notice, John didn't say, do penance. Say ten Hail Marys, five Our Fathers, and go down to the homeless shelter three nights, and then your sins are washed away. Instead, in all three answers that he gives in verses 10 to 14, to the three differing groups, has to do with a lifestyle in how we treat other human beings. Particularly addressed to that competing God with God, our money and our possessions. Clothe and feed the needy when you have that extra to do that now. And do not in your businesses and the way you treat other people in the money realm extort or cheat or manipulate their money out of them to put into your pocket. That's in this text fruits of repentance. Now, when you really put those together, remember what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Repentance is at its core vertical. It's a heart change in response to God. It's something has turned around vertically to God. And John says the fruits of that are shown horizontally in loving other people down here. Jesus summed this up this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That's vertical. That's the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, don't miss it. The second is the fruit of the first. The second is the fruit growing out of the process of this first worship, vertical repentance and love for God through Jesus Christ. It is drinking vertically of what you need and then overflowing with what He's given to you in any and every realm to other people who have need. Love it. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is the fruit, not the root. The root is the first commandment. And that's what John is saying. This is so central to biblical Christianity that the Apostle John starkly put it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. In the well, verse 19 to begin with. Very short and profound sentence. You should love sentences. There's two parts of it. There are two clauses. And the second clause is a causal clause. It's the ground. It's the foundation for the reality of the first. He says, Christian, 
We love, and in the context, he means each other. Benevolent love. Doing loving acts from the heart to others, believers particularly here. He says, here's the reality. We love. Because He first loved us. John knows what he's doing. You just turn the logic around. Just saying, because God grabbed a hold of you while we were yet sinners and children of wrath and made us alive, He loved us. Therefore, we love our brothers. And if he's not clear enough with that one, two-clause sentence, he says in verse 20, he may make it clear. If anyone says, I love God, and in the context it means, I'm a Christian, I love God, and yet hates his brother. It's real simple for John. He is a liar. Okay, so John the Baptist is going to give examples of the fruit. And as he does this, remember he's showing a kind of lifestyle, not that you create, but you do foment. It's a lifestyle that grows out of a heart that has been regenerated or born again, has come to saving Loving, embracing of Jesus Christ. And for the way John's going to do this, you think about it. It's pretty much true whether you're living in Haiti or the most affluent country in the history of the world. There's no quicker way to get to the heart of the matter for true repentance than when you get to what we people own and the money we have. All three of his answers deal with our possessions and stuff and money in relationship to other people. Jesus said very clearly, can't serve God. He means this vertical thing where I'm serving God and you can't serve money at the same time. Now, don't serve. What do you mean serve? Trust me. You, a servant of money doesn't wake up in the morning saying, okay money, what do you need for me to do for you today? Can I take your clothes to the laundromat? Can I clean your house for you money? It's not what serve means here. We know what it means. You become enslaved to what you think money can give me. There's money can give me the happiness, the stuff, the toys, the play, the security. I need money, money, money. Oh, if I can have some more. That's what it means to serve money. And that's what it means to serve God. It's sin when we do it with money. It's the essence of righteousness when we go, God, what can you be to me? And you look in His Word and you say, Yes! Everything I need. The only appropriate way to approach God is empty-handed and say, I'm coming to get! Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest for your soul. And that's why in the battle of the Christian life it is a battle between the love of money and stuff and things and what all that stuff and things buy us and we think the happiness it gives us with is God my God. Do I look to God? Now, as we go and look at verses 10 to 14, that was my introduction. So the sermon's really short now, okay? The rest, here comes the body. 
before we look at these, I want us to look at these and keep in mind what I'm going to read here. And that is this warning not to misinterpret what John is saying from the pen of Pastor Kent Hughes. Quote, It is not uncommon for people who do not know Christ to perform elevated ethical deeds in an attempt to prove the authenticity of their Christianity. They may take up a just social cause, then present it as the evidence of their spiritual life. I am pro-life, therefore I am a Christian. I am an advocate for the poor. This proves my Christianity. The real danger comes with spiritual presumption stemming from exemplary ethical performance. That's why I've talked about fruit and root. Don't flip them. Now, he goes on. However, it is also true that if you are truly regenerate and repentant, your faith will most surely affect how you treat others. Especially those who are closest to you. Your family, your business associates, your employees, and those in need. If there is no change in your personal ethics, no elevation of your concern and care for others, you may be self deceived about your salvation. So, just hold that back there, okay? Let's go to verse 10 and verse 11. And the crowds came and they asked John the Baptist, what then shall we do? What actions are you talking about that are fruits of a heart that repents? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to give to him who has none. And whoever has food and someone else is hungry and they really don't have food, you're to do likewise. Tunics is this undergarment they wore under the, the coat. John is not preaching against ownership of stuff. He's not preaching communism, and nor is he preaching it's wrong to have more than one set of clothes. That's not his point. His point is when God has met your need in this area or that area, and you have more than enough in that area, and God providentially brings people in front of your path that they need that. He says repentance... For God gives that to them. Where God has met your need and you've got plenty in abundance, give it. That's an example of the fruits of repentance. Verses 12 to 13. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we tax collectors do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to. (laughs) Okay. Need a little bit of history here. First century, Roman Empire and the tax system. The way it worked was this. Rome, the government, would take bids... And therefore people, and in this, in the land of, of Israel, in Judea, and Galilee, there, it would be Jewish people trying to win the contracts to collect the taxes in this region, or that region, or this region, or that region, okay? And the highest bidder would get the contract. Which means, as you go and collect the toll tax and the poll tax and an income tax and the differing taxes and the way these guys were really good at taxing twice. 
The bid, the high bid meant that's how much, when you got the contract, you have to pay the Roman government for that area in that period of time. Everything else you can collect above and beyond that is in your pocket. And boy, oh boy, you can see how such a business is wide open to abuse. And it's why in the first century, the Jews, they hated their fellow Jews who were tax collectors and fell into or or joyfully loved that business. But John, he did not tell the tax collectors, get out of that business. Rather, he does tell them, collect no more than you're authorized to. What it just clearly means is they cheated. That was the only way they can really, really become wealthy as a tax collector. Now, see, if you're going to take that business, you've got to make a profit in any business or you don't stay in business. John's saying, treat these other human beings made in God's image as if you were in their shoes. So when you go to to collect taxes, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be fair in your dealings with them. That's a sign. That's the fruit for a tax collector in the first century of genuine repentance. And, And the thing about that illustration that Luke gives us here with John, Boy, does it go easily one-to-one correspondence with any person in business. Today, that lady has no idea what this job should cost. I think I could really ream them or her. Or, I know what I'll bid here, but I know down the line, ooh, I'll be able to say, oh, you need that. And you need that. Oh, this, ha- this is broken. I didn't know that, so I've got to charge you more and more. It's the same kind of principle. Verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So he lets us know here that true repentance will bear the fruit of not abusing power for your own personal gain. He doesn't tell the soldiers, stop that uh, occupation of yours. And we know from Scripture that civil government is God's purpose, is His will. It's ordained by Him. And there's no such thing as a civil government operating without police or law Enforcement, and it's essentially what they were. These soldiers probably, most commentators do think, were Jewish soldiers. He's just saying, be content. Which in their situation, in their context, was really difficult. It's hard. Because it was so easy to rationalize. All my other buddies, all my other fellow law enforcement soldiers... They're doing the same thing. We don't get paid that much. And they didn't. So, it was just a given. You line your pockets at the expense of other people by threatening them. You don't want to go down to jail, do you? Or violence. Our next door neighbor, Mexico, and their police for years have been known for that. It looks like an American pull them over. They don't really want to take you in. They don't want to give you a ticket. They want you to slip them something. This is what they were doing. John says, true repentance doesn't do that. Repentant soldiers won't just go with the flow of what's common with all their other soldiers. A repentant soldier will put himself in the place of the person He's tempted to extort money from. 
can make false accusations against in order to get a bribe. So overall, John's point is be content. It's the fruit of repentance. The fruit of turning to the mercy of God is be content. Trust God, in other words, so that you don't give in to the temptation of withholding what you know in this situation you should give to that person some food or your shirt. Trust God's promises so that you won't give in to the temptation to extort or cheat in business somebody to line your own pockets. You hear it? Now, how, okay, how is that fruit of repentance or fruit of genuine saving faith? Here's the quickest, because we need quick now. I see the time. Way to do it is just turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Because it's right there. This is saying exactly the same thing. This is why John is essentially saying, here's true repentance. All the crowd, soldiers and tax collectors, do Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. That's not it. Now hear it. That's not all of it. For. See the word F-O-R? It means the reason you could do the first. You who have been made alive to Christ. You who have the tree of life and faith and repentance. The reason this is doable is because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you have faith, if you are trusting that Jesus and His work on the cross is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises, then you don't have to exploit other people to get their money and put it in your pocket. God has said He will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, I got an extra shirt. We can give it. Therefore, we don't have to be dishonest in business. We can trust Him. That's John's point. Relying on God's mercy, hoping in His promises, changes how we handle our money and our possession, particularly in relationship to other people. The Holy Spirit through John the Baptist, is still speaking today directly to us believers sitting in this room. That the way we handle our money and our stuff in relation to other human beings who are made in God's image, the way we do business, all of that is this constant barometer, a measuring stick of the authenticity or the health of our walk with God. And on that measuring stick, there are signposts like John the Baptist put up there. He wasn't afraid to give them. He answered their questions. On the barometer of saving faith or Genuine repentance that flows out of faith. He gave these guys answers. So in our life, there's on that measuring stick, how healthy, how's my walk with the Lord? Here's one 
measuring stick? How generous are we with our possessions? Are we caring enough when there's a need to meet it? You know, let me just, time is a possession. You know, time is money. You put time in. You know, that's, you know, give me money for that. Or sometimes people don't have money. Boy, we want to hold on to our time. When we know, maybe I, hanging out with that person is exactly what they need. Anyone ever dealt with that tension? We're always desperate. God, bear fruit in me. Do we share our homes, our food, our cars with people who need them? Or just for hospitality sake? Or do we cling to our stuff and our money so tightly as it is the object of that which really makes me happy. Competing with God. Do we enjoy? That's a key word. It's the way Paul would talk about it when he's raising money from the church for the poor people in the church in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. He gave as their his example. Be like the church down in Macedonia, who they were so happy to give, they begged us, Paul, come and let us give a lot of money to this. And Paul says they gave even beyond their means. Do you enjoy giving to family, friends, people God brings across your path? And do we give joyfully and deliberately to the Lord of our money stuff. Do we understand that 10% is not the goal? It's foundational. For a believer who has been rescued out of the wrath of God and come into the realization of His sovereign providence. And you wake up to the reality of, I wasn't born in Haiti or the Dominican Republic. Why was I born in America or some other affluent country? And you realize there's nothing that I have me, even when my hands and my mind knows how to make and earn money, I realize God has given everything to me. And He says I could live starting at 90% of all that? Now, I'm going to tell I rarely ever talk about that issue. And it's probably a sin. Because 30 years ago when I became a Christian, this issue of money was so manipulated by manipulating preachers that it makes people like me sin by avoiding it. But, there's something that's so clear. It just seems to constantly be clear. That where your money is, that's where your heart is, in every area of life. I didn't come up with that saying. And when it comes to the issue of happily giving to the Lord, now, having said, I know there's a minute, I'm going to tell you something. I say it because I'm just so convinced of it from Scripture and from being a Christian for 30 years. It is a barometer of the spiritual health of a person. So much so, you can just flip it around and go throughout American evangelicalism. You can go to thousands of churches and somehow in your mind you can do a survey. You're not going to do a survey on anybody's giving. You're just going to do a survey by, you know, you can hang out at a church for a year and you, and you look at people and you say, who are, the, who are the 
spiritual people? Who are the committed people? Who are the people who seem to really be hungry for God? Out of all the churchgoers, who are these people that just understand their uh, desperate need for church and church membership and making themselves accountable in the lives of others, etc., etc.? Wow, they're just on fire for the Lord. And who? They're just not that way. And they come, you know, six out of ten weeks. But in every other, you can just, it's hard to get a conversation going over the things of God, over biblical Christianity and doctrine. You don't need to look at their end of the year giving statements. These are so closely connected. And John the Baptist is going right to the heart as the forerunner of Christ. He says, I'll give you at the heart of what it means to turn to God. It's directly connected to what we're all tempted to worship. It is no wonder that God created a world in which our money, things, possession, the stuff, would be one of the main metaphors that He ordained to be used for saving faith. Where your treasure is, there's your heart also. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And then he buried it back up and he ran home and he sold all he had to buy the field. Of course, it's not the money. It's not the treasure. It's that it competes with God. And He's saying, as much as it is so natural for me and you and every one of us constantly to love money and hold back from blessing that person in front of us, that's the barometer. Joe, are you loving God today? Because we're... Our love for money goes up. Our love for God is being shown is going down. That's why Jesus says, there's another one, you cannot serve God in money. Those today that we're reading here in Luke 3 with John the Baptist who have fled for refuge in Jesus Christ from hell in order to enjoy God Himself who is our riches. According to John, in repentance, we believers become conduits down here in this life for God to flow in blessing others. That road. Okay, we should run out of here happy for the gospel. That road of the Christian life is not smooth as glass. It is a road, though, for the Christian life that is a Holy Spirit-directed life of repentance where we constantly are in need of repentance and faith and faith and repentance. And it's why... These spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and thinking and accountability to other believers and sharing and letting yourself be known and knowing and caring are so important in the life of us believers because we constantly, I know I am, am bombarded from within of my sin of un. Caring, lovelessness, jealousy, hatred, harshness, constant repentance and help from brothers and sisters is needed. But the message of John is that it's on that road that we are constantly experiencing the joy of forgiveness and the constant renewed sense. There's fruit. I could not do that. Yes! Christ in me. The hope of glory. Look at that. Faith. 
as little as it is today, it's real. And therefore, I'm fully, fully in. As we are preparing our hearts for communion, we will pass it out, we'll hold, we'll pray together. Keep this prayer from John Newton, the one who wrote... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Here's a prayer as we wrestle with what we're talking about this morning. Sanctification. The life of a believer. The work of the Spirit in us. Here's the prayer I want to be in our minds as we're singing and preparing. He said, Dear God, I confess that I am not what I should be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I will be one day. But can you say this? But by Your grace, I know this. I am what I am. I am not what I once was. Has Christ done that to you? And we're going to partake of the bread. We're going to partake of the blood in great thankfulness because He has borne our wrath and He has lived in perfect righteousness which we could never do before Christ and I promise you, you never will do this side of the resurrection. Lord, would you cause the trees of Christ's saving work in your people to flower, to bloom, and fruit to hang in ways this week, in ways this month, in ways throughout 2011 that will blow our minds with your goodness and your grace to the glory of your holy name. Amen.